Welcome to the Doodle Kisses podcast, an extension of doodlekisses.com. I'm your host, Adina Pearson. Doodlekisses.com is the social network for Labradoodle and Golden Doodle owners, wannabe owners, and the Doodle Curious. The goal of this podcast is to provide education, entertainment, and connect with our Doodle Kisses members on the topic of Labradoodles, Golden Doodles, and dogs in general. Puppy mills don't really care about dogs. They care about producing product and making money off of that product. They will produce whatever is popular and sells. This includes doodles. Nobody wants to believe their doodle came from a puppy mill. And, you know, yours may definitely have not come from a puppy mill. But unless you visited your breeder's home, you really can't know for sure. With so many doodle puppies being shipped to their owners or breeders meeting puppy buyers away from their home, it's always a possibility that the conditions your puppy grew up in were less than stellar. In 2020, anyone can create a gorgeous website. And if a breeder is doing well financially from selling puppies, they can even afford to get professional photos taken of their breeding dogs and present things as pristine when the reality behind the scenes is very different. Years ago, there was a longtime active member on Doodle Kisses who happened to be a breeder and respected among other breeders. Little by little, we learned that this breeder's dogs were ending up in a rescue because of overcrowding and unclean conditions. I don't remember exactly, but perhaps there was a health issue going on. It was really heartbreaking because this was a member that we had a good relationship with and was active and seemed like a reputable person. I even reached out personally to this breeder to try to encourage and hear them out. The breeder continued breeding past when they should have. Since then, quite a few similar scenarios have come to light among Doodle Rescue. Perhaps not full-on puppy mills, just like this other breeder wasn't a full-on puppy mill, but there was clear evidence that the the behind-the-scenes of the pretty website and pretty photos didn't match, and breeders that were overcrowded or breeding dogs that weren't as healthy as they should be. This is still going on, even if it's not clear to the public. I recently posted an important message about this topic on Doodle Kisses and Facebook and Instagram, and I'm going to read it to you and link you to the posts in our show notes. The post started with an image that said brands versus doodle, and under brands I listed Eddie Bauer, Apple, Starbucks, Kind, Cottonelle, Tillamook, Toyota, REI, Nutella, Subaru, Keen, Godiva, and under the doodle, there's an image of a doodle. With well-known and trusted brands that people recognize, there is an expectation of a certain quality, a look, certain characteristics or function. For example, a bottle of Starbucks Frappuccino is the same whether you purchase that within a Starbucks store or a gas station or your favorite grocery store. When people think of doodles, they tend to expect the same. Someone might say, I've met a doodle. They are wonderful dogs. But no dog, regardless of breed, is quote-unquote manufactured by one company who is in charge of the quality control the way, let's say, Starbucks might be. Doodles are quote-unquote manufactured by countless different breeders with countless different standards, some higher, some lower, some with no standards. There's no 
quote unquote doodle corporation oversight. You have to vet breeders yourself to be sure that they're doing things up to par and are going to offer you what you're expecting. Not every poodle or golden retriever or golden doodle or even Australian labradoodle can possibly live up to the hype when they're coming from so many different breeders or producers. Hershey's is not the same as Nutella, which is not the same as Godiva, which is not the same as Snickers, even though they are all varieties of chocolate. Australian Labradoodles in particular are marketed as all being very special and superior to other types of doodles. No doubt if you have an Australian Labradoodle, yours is pretty special to you. But there is no Australian Labradoodle plant or factory where they all come from. Bad breeders of Australian Labradoodles do exist. Breeders who breed dogs with hip dysplasia, breeders who breed dogs with allergies or incontinence or who don't do anything special at all to quote-unquote improve their dogs or the breed at all. You can't know this without meeting the breeder and their dogs. Everything else is a pretty website. There are breeders who have dozens of dogs in their home living in filth, and totally unsocialized. You can't see this from a pretty website. There are Australian Labradoodles that resource guard or bite and end up in rescue. Australian Labradoodles that are wild and crazy. Australian Labradoodles that don't do well with children. Please don't take this personally as an affront or an offense to you. You might have a wonderful doodle. You might have a wonderful Australian Labradoodle. That doesn't mean that that's the case across the board. In most breeds, there are excellent breeders, good enough breeders, okay breeders, backyard breeders, bad breeders, and puppy millers. The same is true for doodles and Australian labradoodles. They are not magically exempt. But from the hype, you might think that somehow the recipe has been mastered by doodle breeders and that they have now created the quote-unquote perfect family dog that comes out like a square of Godiva every single time. So consistent and wonderful that it will be the same no matter where you buy it from. That's simply not so. The parent dogs matter. Their genetics matter. The breeder matters every single time. Be wise. Take off the rose-colored glasses, put on your BS meter, and ask hard questions of any breeder before you write a check. So now back to what we're talking about in our podcast. I'm interviewing journalist Rory Cress. When Rory realized that her own dog came from a puppy mill, she decided to investigate further. With the information she learned, she wrote the book, The Doggy in the Window, to expose the truth about puppy mills and the structures and systems that support them. In this episode, we discuss some of her findings, like how the rise of factory farming has contributed and the role of the USDA. There's a lot to learn and a lot to think about, Please listen to this episode and take it to heart and think about making sure that the next time you purchase a dog from a breeder, you are very careful and wise. Enjoy the episode. Hi, 
Rory. Thank you for being on the Doodle Kisses podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. Um, You wrote a book on puppy mills in the last few years. What is the name of that book? Yeah, it's called The Doggy in the Window, and it's all about the supply chain from USDA licensed breeder um, straight up to internet retail sales and pet shops and, you know, where we get our dogs from and, you know, where do puppies really come from, which is, you know, a shock to many, especially seeing that the U.S. government licenses and regulates many of these breeders um, and sort of debunking the myths of the industry, which is that um, puppy mills are illegal. In fact, most of them are very legal and regulated um, by the federal government and state governments in some cases, and debunking the myth that, um, you know, a puppy is a blank slate um, and that buying a puppy is a safer bet um, than perhaps rescuing a, an older dog. Um, that rather when you buy these dogs through the puppy mill chain, they often come with baggage, um, mental problems, physical problems that you, you might not know about. Oh, that's so funny because the person I just talked to creates videos for breeders and puppy owners on how to get dogs through that critical socialization period Mm. and all that's required to make a dog like withstand the world. And to me, it's like, well, duh, (laughs) of course, the dog, a puppy that's just sat there and and who knows what and has no exposure to anything, they're not going to be a clean slate. So let's back up a bit because I always like to find out about my guests' history with dogs, their personal sure. dog story. So did you grow up with dogs or how did you get into dogs in the first place? Yeah. So the book is really about um, my first and only dog who I ever had, who's sitting right here right now with me. Um, her name is Izzy. And, um, you know, the the book is really an admission, um, which not a lot of people will make <laughs> willingly, which is that I'm an idiot. And I purchased a dog from a pet store now 10 years ago um, when I was living in New York. Um, I believed the, oh, it's a USDA licensed breeder. It's not a puppy mill. I had family members who'd been buying dogs there. I said, no, 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 it's not puppy mills. These are all USDA licensed and inspected. It's okay. You don't want to, you know, go check it out. So we we did. And um, as a journalist at the time I was working at Today Show, I, I didn't really think about it. I just kept going off to work and reporting on the stories that I thought were important news stories and kind of ignoring my dog as being a story and she was just a pet. But over the years, um, I started getting more and more curious about, wait, why does the address on her form from the pet shop, which is by the way, more than most people get from pet shops, but you know, still Mm -hmm. say Missouri, what's, what's up with that? How did she get from Missouri to Long Island? Who was this dog? Why does she have weird phobias? And digging and digging and digging until I realized that USDA license almost guarantees puppy mill. Mm. You know, I really bought into this brand of federal licensing. You know, they they certify the food I eat, the milk I drink, the popcorn is organic, USDA certified, the eggs are, you know, USDA certified. It sounded like an imprimatur that brought something and it, it truly doesn't. Yeah. And, and it's funny because you say that when I go to a breeder's website and it says USDA licensed and inspected, even though every sign points that they don't have a bazillion dogs, that's like a red flag to me. Like why that's the lowest form of certification (laughs) that I can imagine. It means nothing. So what, you know, what does USDA licensed inspected even mean? Like what's the bare bones of what that, of what the USDA has done to check on anything? Yeah, the history of the USDA's involvement, I should just say the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and I just want to emphasize that because I think it's a really important part of this, that dogs 
are grouped in with agriculture. Dogs are treated as livestock Hmm. um, within the context of a breeding facility. And that's really important to like stop and think about. And most people don't. And, you know, I've talked to people from all over the animal welfare map who, you know, might be vegan, might not be vegan. And you don't have to be an animal rights person and all of that to kind of agree that a dog is not livestock. A dog is not a farm animal. And what's especially um, upsetting about the, the regulations is that you can have two dogs on the same property, same owner. One can be considered livestock under the law and one can be considered a pet. Hmm. Um, so like, for example, if my dog Izzy were kept in the house, but I kept a breeding dog in the backyard who, uh, you know, is licensed by the USDA. If I, you know, abuse that dog, it's a misdemeanor. If I abuse my pet dog, it's a felony. Same animal, same threshold for pain, um, you know, same helplessness against human cruelty, but different treatments under the law. And I think that's really important to underscore that the law treats these animals very differently. Um, Now, the USDA licenses and inspects facilities around the country um, according to the Animal Welfare Act, which is a real misnomer. Um, It doesn't say anything about genetics genetic testing, which is, you know, especially with the doodle population, you know, can be a a major issue. Right. Um, uh, Izzy is a Wheaton Terrier. They carry Addison's disease and all other kinds of issues that aren't screened at all. There's nothing to stop a breeder from breeding litter mates or even a parent dog, a dam or sire with their own um, litter. Mm -hmm. If they're exemplary for the breed, why not? Um, There's nothing to stop them from keeping a dog in a cage um, only six inches longer from nose to the tip, to the base of its tail, um, for its entire life. A dog never needs to set foot to grass in its entire life. Um, there are temperature regulations, which any pet owner would be abhorred by. Um, there are feeding and watering regulations that are minimal at best. Um, and any dog owner would never adhere to within a context of their own animal. In fact, I live in Denver. If I were to keep Izzy, in the exact same conditions that a breeding dog is kept in an up-to-code USDA licensed facility, according to the Animal Welfare Act, I could be arrested for animal cruelty mm-hmm. um, because she's a pet and any of my neighbors would call the cops if they saw a dog being kept in those kinds of conditions. Perfectly yeah. legal. That makes no sense at all, especially, no. you know, if dogs were bought to be used in similar conditions that you know, the puppy mills use them, then I guess that would make sense. But considering that everyone who buys from puppy mills tends to be people who want pets, you know, like that, that in itself should mean something. (laughs) You know, I always say this, I I don't always try to appeal to people's humanity or sense of decency with regard to animals. I don't assume everybody has that. Um, And that's hard to assume. And everybody has different um, bars for care. For example, I have people in my neighborhood who have outdoor dogs, which, you know, I would never do. Mm -hmm. Um, But they think they love their dogs and, you know, whatever, fine. That's what they do. Um, However, I I try to bring it back to just common good sense of business and profitability. If you're breeding a dog to be a pet and to live in somebody's house, why are you breeding it in these factory farm conditions? Um, you know, part of it is that the system is set up so that the breeders themselves have very little accountability, the pet shops, the retail, all of that really shields the breeder 
from having to deal with any repercussions. If you purchase a dog at a pet store a thousand miles from where it was bred and there are problems in a year or two years, who's gonna, who are you gonna go to? You're gonna go to the pet shop or the breeder? Often you won't even know who the breeder is. You'll just know who the pet shop is. Right. Do you think that the people who work in pet stores believe that their dogs are not from puppy mills? Do you think they believe that themselves? Um, it's hard to speculate on that. I, you know, I've seen interviews with former pet shop employees who say they didn't understand. I don't know. Um, it's hard to speculate on what the actual employees know. I will say the owners of the pet shop certainly know where their supply chain comes from. Same as if you own a coffee shop, you know where your beans came from, you know where you bought them. Mm-hmm. But as for the rank and file employee, I, I don't know. And look, everybody's trying to earn a buck. And, and same with the breeders. The breeders aren't exactly living high off the hog either. Um, when I went into the puppy mills myself and saw them, oh. you know, they're, you know, they're not making a ton of money off of this. You know, it, it really is a case of how this country has sold out the small American farmer. The history of this is that, and the reason it's so concentrated in the heartland, um, these farming states like Missouri is the number one puppy mill state, is because small farmers got sold out over the years. If you were a small pig farmer, and that was your livelihood, Smithfield comes in and takes over, or a big, you know, big pork, big cattle, big beef, you don't have a business anymore. What are you going to do? Well, all you've ever known is farming, and you still have cages, so you put some dogs in them and sell them. It's not a great business. It's not because these people think they have a passion for dogs. They just mm-hmm. don't have anything better. Um, I often think that a better way to to help resolve this would be to go to the source and help these people find a more humane, lucrative <laughs> line of business. That's I just think there's nothing else that they know to do. Yeah, yeah. I imagine most people don't start off with this malicious intent, like, oh, I'm going to make right. puppies and keep them in gross cages. But mm-hmm. they may, you know, some part of their humanity got <laughs> shut down because to be able to go there and see these dogs that you're holding <laughs> and not be like, whoa. <laughs> right. I think, you know, I have one dog. I, I don't know how many you have. I have just Izzy. She's the only dog I've ever had. And it's, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a full-time job looking after her. She's, a, she's old now. She's nine, 10 years old. But, you know, it's, it's not that easy to take care of a puppy. She was a, a monster as a puppy. And, you know, now she's pretty low maintenance. But it takes time and thought and effort to put into what am I going to do when I'm at work for this animal? What am I going to get her to eat? She eats only prescription kibble. Otherwise, she gets hot spots. You know, like, mm-hmm. especially with the doodle community as well, you probably see similar allergies that the dog has themselves um, and quirks and things like that, that you have to tend to, to have a healthy, long-lived dog, assuming that's your goal. I don't know how then you have a hundred dogs on your property and two people watching them. You can't. Yeah. They are livestock at that point. Absolutely. So talking about pet stores, there are certain states that don't have them anymore. Is that correct? Yes. Do you know which those are? I don't have the exact list of those right now off the okay. top of my head. I don't want to give you an incorrect answer because there, sure. there are states like New York that have counties that have gotten rid of them and municipalities, mm-hmm. but not the whole state, for example. Um, uh-huh. But I believe Maryland and California, um, there are a few states. Colorado is not pet shop free yet, um, but a lot of states have switched to a model of 
um, you can sell, not sell, you, you can adopt out rescue dogs at hmm. your store. And actually, um, there's one case that the Humane Society um, brought to me, which I just love. I wish I'd had it when I was reporting the book of a former pet shop owner who sold dogs at her pet shop. Um, and now she switched to like a product only model where she sells like fancy leashes and, you know, expensive toys and things like that. No dogs. She makes more money now than she ever made selling dogs at retail. Um, and I love stories like that because I think when you hit people in the wallet, they really understand. Um, selling animals is not a great business to get into. (laughs) What do you, I mean, what is your opinion on, obviously my answer is don't buy a puppy from a pet store. But what happens to those puppies if they don't get sold? You know, if someone's walking in there and they're like, oh, but I've seen this puppy three times and it's, you know, 12 weeks now and nobody's buying it. I have to rescue it. What would you say to that person? From a pet shop or from a breeder? Pet shop. Uh, Well, you know, luckily, for the most part, people are becoming better educated about pet shops themselves. Um, There are some really great organizations out there that are picketing and protesting in front of them all the time um, in many, many different states. I highly recommend um, people look at bailing out Benji. Um, they're doing amazing work. They're out there in the cold rain and snow in I think at least a dozen states. Um, so that if you're walking into that pet shop, there's no way you don't know what you're walking into mm-hmm. and who they buy from. They even have signs saying this, they buy from this breeder. Here's a picture of this breeder. I mean, they're very good at educating customers. It's, it's hard to say. One of the things I talk about in the book is that pet shops are designed psychologically and marketing-wise to tap into the part of your brain that's going to attach to the animal. They prey on the fact that once you see that animal, it is going to be very, very, very difficult for you to walk away. You just, you're, you're there, you're in it now. And we even see that same psychological effect online. Um, I talked to one woman who purchased a dog online. Now she didn't even see that dog in person. Mm-hmm. She's like, I need this dog. I know this is wrong, but I have to have this dog. You know, people are going to make that decision no matter what. Um, and the whole system is designed to tap into that instinct and that urge. Um, so I would say your best bet is not walking in the store in the first place. It's it's hard though. I, I understand. Um, I understand the in- instinct, and that's why you know. I'm sympathetic. I, I obviously bought a dog at retail, um, but let's say just don't go in the store. Yeah. Oh, I agree. I don't. Li- I have not. I've seen one pet store in my life, and that was, I think, in Las Vegas. Maybe. Hmm. What state are you based in? I'm in Washington. Oh. Okay. So any pet stores here, are like the big chains, and any of the smaller ones, are not don't sell anything but like rats, you know, mice, mm-hmm. whatever. They don't sell dogs. Um, so it's not something I've come across very often, but I can totally imagine how someone would feel like, but I'm saving this puppy from this life in a pet store. And I guess the only thing I'd say is like, just imagine his siblings and roommates and all the other dogs that are left behind and suffering. And when you purchase this dog, you are supporting that puppy mill, no matter how good it feels to save this puppy. Um, but let's say that puppy didn't sell in time. Where does that puppy go? Depends on the pet shop. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, one of the slogans that this uh, advocacy group bailing out Benji uses is show me the mommy, Um, Mm. which I I like. I mean, I like because it reminds me of uh, (laughs) Jerry Maguire, Um, (laughs) but also because, you know, it's catchy and it reminds you, you know, yeah, you're seeing an adorable puppy, but what does the mom look like? 
what is the dog that's turning probably already onto her next litter right, right. now? The dog's only a few months old. Um, and I think, I think that's just an important to point to remember. It's not about the puppy that you're seeing in front of you. There's a whole supply chain behind it. It depends on the pet shop. Um, I couldn't speak to what any individual pet shop does or doesn't do, um, with dogs after they do or don't sell. Um, I would think that they eventually do cause they take down the price low until somebody will take it. Yeah. I was curious but if, if you know sure. of like a rescue route, like do they tend to dump them at the shelter or rescue? Do they send them back to the puppy mill? I'm curious. I wonder I'm if I'm not so a... sure. Um, the focus of my research wasn't as much on mm-hmm. pet shops, but rather on the USDA and the licensing and the supply chain. So I, I, I wouldn't want to speak out of turn on it and sure. give you faulty information. I'm sure it depends on the store and, you know, the humanity of the people involved. Yeah. Because even, might... even with bad actors, they're medium bad actors and very <laughs> bad actors. Yeah. 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 Okay. So in, in through your research, what else came up that you were surprised by that you think our listeners might be surprised by? You know, I think recognizing that our federal government has a role in this is really important. And, you know, my, my background journalistically was never animals, um, animal welfare, animal rights. That's not been my background. Um, and so in telling this story to an often not animal welfare crowd, I think what surprised them the most um, was that your taxpayer dollars are funding this system. Um, so even if you're horrified by it, even if you don't want to support it, even if you didn't like me buy a dog at a pet shop like an idiot, because <laughs> I am, um, you're still supporting the system because your taxpayer dollars are supporting the USDA in its utterly <laughs> inadequate enforcement of this. And in some, case, um, in some cases, not even just inadequate, but complicit um, bad enforcement of this. And, and what I mean by that is if you're a puppy miller in rural Missouri, you see the same USDA inspector every you know year or so. Mm-hmm. You build a relationship with them. They're going to let you off the hook for certain things. And in certain cases, my um, freedom, freedom of information requests turned up that state inspectors in states that have an inspection system, not all do, on the same day, turned up multiple serious violations um, that should shut down a breeder while the USDA marked it as, as being utterly in compliance. Hmm. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't clean up my own house that fast, let alone a property <laughs> with 600 dogs. Right. I don't know how that's possible, um, that you can find a dog who's dying of some serious breeder negligence. And then within a matter of minutes to hours, a USDA inspector comes through and says, nope, we're all clear here. You know, and not just one dog, but multiple dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, that was particularly damning to me. It was also particularly damning to me that the USDA knows about this. When I spoke to the regional head who oversees the USDA operations in the heartland about this, who, by the way, is a veterinarian by trade. Um, obviously, he's a, you know, he runs that office for the USDA, but he's also a trained veterinarian. He full on admitted that the entire USDA supply chain to the pet shop is, you know, terrible for a dog. Oh. What can we do about it? We have to follow the Animal Welfare Act. That's all we're charged with doing. Yeah. We're not here to change it. And I think also the lack of transparency. It is important, you know, without getting too political, I think it is important to recognize that dogs are, <laughs> they don't vote, but we do. 
And within 15 days of the Trump administration becoming inaugurated, um, before there was even a USDA secretary appointed, every single USDA record was pulled from the internet, where you used to be able to at least see if your dog came from a breeder with violations or not. Now you cannot. There are advocacy groups working to bring them out and Mm -hmm. put them on their websites, but where there used to be a measure of some transparency, now there's none. So again, why are my taxpayer dollars supporting a system of regulation that I can't even look at and have any say into? Yeah, I think regardless of how someone feels about extra laws or or more laws or whatever, if you're paying for something, it makes sense that you should be able to have some oversight or be able to see what's happening. So basically the USDA, FDA, whatever, isn't very useful, isn't useful at all in this regard. So aside from more federal things, what is, do you have any ideas or opinions or hypotheses of how this could be changed to reduce the number of puppy mills on a more grassroots level? I think, again, um, as consumers, it's really important that we, we vote with our wallets. Mm-hmm. Our buying decisions really matter, ultimately. Um, and thinking about, you know, where are you sourcing your animal from, your dog? And, uh, you know, again, rather than appeal to whether or not, you know, some people might say, well, so what? I got a dog. I love the dog. Dog's great. You know, what are you complaining about? Mm-hmm. Fine. Okay. But think about it. You're making theoretically a 10 to 15 year investment in an animal. How much money do you spend on your dog over the years? I mean, I don't know about you, but I could have a much nicer house if I didn't have a dog. <laughs> I would certainly have had a lot more for, for a down payment if I hadn't had a dog for 10 years. Um, Cause I'm again, an idiot and I spend a lot of money on my dog because I love her and take care of her. Um, you know, that's a significant financial investment. Do you want to put it into an animal that might not have had the full spectrum of um, positive experiences from birth on? And by the way, you know, some of these issues happen before the dog is even born. I spoke with an animal neurobehavioralist at Penn. Um, she's one of the only ones in the world. She runs a lab. They do um, tests on military dogs. She ran a test on my dog, Izzy. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that that bore out, and then her research has shown, is that epigenetic stress is a serious problem in puppy mill dogs. Mm. Just to say that the stress that the mother encounters, even before the dog is born, even before the mother is pregnant, it imprints on the DNA of subsequent generations. So before your dog is even born, it is already damaged in a lot of cases. Do you really want to invest in an animal with that kind of question mark hanging over its head? And do you really want to invest in people that are doing that? So I think a lot of this comes down to consumer behavior. What are you doing to not support this? And by the way, every time a dog is born in a puppy mill and you buy it, that's a dog at the shelter that's not going home. Right, right. And as much as I believe in rescue, I don't think that only rescue is appropriate, but thinking about like, if you're supporting a puppy mill, then definitely you should put that money to rescue. (laughs) And not all rescues are created equal. And I think this is an important thing that, you know, I interviewed people from all sides of the spectrum, people I do not personally agree with, um, obviously from the, you know, animal ownership right side of things. So the Uh breeder side of things and their, their groups, 
Um, and they say, well, the rescuers are trying to put us out of business because it oh. costs 500 bucks to rescue a dog, you know, so how is that different? Why, why should we go out of business? Because they charge to adopt. And, you know, obviously anybody who knows anything knows it costs <laughs> a lot of money to rescue a dog yeah. and give it medical attention and all of that, but how's it? Um, but, you know, I think even with rescues, again, they're not all created equal. It is important to know some rescues do buy dogs at auction mm-hmm. um, from breeders. Um, it's just, especially in the breed specific rescue community, that's an important thing to look at. I personally am allergic to dogs, um, which is the great irony of this whole thing. So for me, I do have to think about specific breeds. That's a real concern because I don't want to buy, I don't want to adopt from a rescue that buys at auction, you know, because that's a concern for me. Not everybody feels the same way, but it, it is part of the cycle. Now, most most rescues don't. Most rescues have a, a good supply chain. Um, but it's also important. Anything you do with an animal is a serious, serious ethical and personal and financial commitment. So do your research on whether it's a rescue, a breeder, or, you know, somebody saying, hey, I have a dog. Do you want it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. that's fine. And a, but- a good breeder is going to take that puppy back for indefinitely. Like if you're got the dog five years ago, that breeder will take the dog back. Um, mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of those amazing breeders, but they're out there and they're usually breed specific. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's important too. you know, for those of you who are look, you know, most people are going to go to a breeder to get a doodle. There are doodles and rescue, but they're not so plentiful to supply right. everybody's demand. But when you're looking at a breeder, find out like what happens if two, three years from now, you can't keep the dog anymore. Are they willing to take that dog back because they created it? It's their responsibility. And most good breeders are going to say, yes, I do not want this dog to end up in rescue. I will take it back. I will look for a new home for it. Mm -hmm. I think that's, it's interesting. You know, I met some breeders. um, I met breeders that run the gamut from Mm -hmm. excellent to horrific. And with the excellent breeders, I, I told them my, they were Wheaton breeders and I told them the story of how I got my dog. And I said, here was what my life, I didn't tell them where I got my dog. I said, okay, well, I, I eventually did. But first I posed the question. I said, would you sell a dog to me from one of your litters? When I got my dog, I lived in an apartment in New York. I didn't have a yard. I had just moved in with my boyfriend, who's now my husband. We have kids. But at the time we just moved in together like a month ago and, you know, we were living in an apartment. I had a night job that was very demanding, blah, 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 blah. Would you sell me a dog from your litter if I could put up the money? And they said, absolutely not. <laughs> you know, and I think, and so when I told them where I had gotten my dog, like, oh, that makes so much sense. You know, a good breeder is going to have more questions for you than cash or credit. Yes. And we'll probably have more questions for you than you have for them. Right now, even if I wanted to adopt another Wheaton, um, I, I don't know about buy one, but even adopt one, the good rescues will probably not adopt to me because I have a small children. Yes. You know, they usually won't even adopt out to a family with a kid under five, six, seven, mm-hmm. because they're so much more likely to get rid of that dog. And they want to see these animals in forever homes, whether it's yep. a breeder or a good rescue, they don't want to see that dog go again. So they spend a lot of time screening families as they should. This should yeah. be a life commitment for the dog this should be to death do you part yeah if you're purposely breeding animals that are meant to be companion animals and have bonding with their family you 
as a breeder, you've got to ask these questions. It makes no sense if a breeder isn't asking it because then they're just producers of product. They are not right. producers of living, breathing animals. And recently I've been, I've been exploring other breeds outside of the doodle. And there was one breeder I was writing to for a while just to kind of find out more. I'm not quite ready to get a puppy right now. And she was hesitant about my situation because right. I work. I don't even work full time. I work part time and I would be home every four hours or so. And some, you know, it varies mm-hmm. because I run my own business. So I can be home a lot more. And she, you know, she was hesitant. She really wanted to see that I would have daycare options lined up or a dog sitter. And I, as much as that's inconvenient for me, (laughs) I love that she has her own set of criteria that not anybody who just wants a cute family dog is going to be able to get a dog from her. That's a really, really great sign. Um, You know, to your listeners who are looking to purchase from a breeder, because I'm a realist at the end of the day. You know, I understand adopt, don't shop, obviously is the best thing. Um, however, I know that people, especially in the breed specific community or people with allergies are going to have to look a certain direction. And I, I did myself and, you know, when and if I expand my canine family, I will have to do so again because I am allergic. So I understand the impetus, but having a breeder that's asking, making it inconvenient is a really good sign. Absolutely. You know, it it should be inconvenient to bring a life into your home. Um, So I I think it, you know, unfortunately, it does sometimes drive people to purchase. One woman I spoke with purchased a golden doodle and she very much regrets it um, for reasons that I explain in the book. I won't go into all of them, but for all of the obvious reasons, health, uh, sanity, money, all that. Mm -hmm. And the reason she did it was because she'd rescued, or I think she, she'd either gotten it from a, a responsible breeder or rescued in the past. And it was such a hassle that she was like, oh, I'm just going to buy a dog. Mm-hmm. And then she immediately regretted it. Oh, <laughs> like, no. Immediately. Um, so, you know, sometimes the hassle up front and the wait is worth it. I mean, again, a 10 to 15, maybe a 20-year commitment with some breeds, you know, so, so you can't get a dog today. This woman actually, she ended up buying her dog from a site literally called nextdaypets.com. Oh. I, I can't even get stuff on Amazon that quickly. Yeah. So, you know, and they lived up to their name. She had a dog the next day. So wow. I, again, I just think, you know, give it a little time. There, if it takes a year to source the right dog from rescue or a really responsible breeder, you know, and I tell people, cause now I'm the dog person in my group of friends and colleagues like, Oh, I wanted this dog. I wanted that dog. Where do I get it? I'm like, you obviously didn't get the point of the book, which is <laughs> whatever. But you know, my best advice is go in person. First of all, the like, well, the breeder's a couple States away. So I've gone farther for way dumber things than a 15 year commitment. <laughs> and right. by the way, if that breeder doesn't let you on their property and they offer to meet you at a third party location, like a Walmart parking lot or a welcome to you or whatever, that's a pretty good sign that they're hiding something. Mm-hmm. You should be able to freely walk around their facility with, you know, don't trespass. You should be allowed on, obviously. <laughs> there at night with a flashlight looking with Please don't do that. Them. Yeah. Especially, you know, in some states you might get shot. Please go. Take a look. Ask questions. See where the dogs are kept. Where are they bred? I went to one breeder and I was like, can you take me to where the dogs sleep at night? Like, where's the kennels? And they were like, you want to see our bedroom? Like, <laughs> 
that's where the dogs sleep at night. Yeah. Which is a far cry from the puppy mills I saw. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll know. You don't have to be, I'm not a veterinarian. I'm not an animal expert. If you've ever spent a minute around a dog, you can go into a breeder and see very, very quickly that it it vibes with your sense of ethics or not. Right. Would you live in a home that has that level of chaos or not? You know, I mean, sometimes breeders can handle a lot more dogs running around and noise. That's different than if it looks like a scene out of hoarders or the dogs are in a barn or... We're outdoors. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This episode is sponsored by Adina Pearson Nutrition. That's right. When I'm not talking doodle, I'm helping women of all ages find peace and joy with food. I'm a registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor specializing in eating disorders, emotional eating, and breaking free from yo-yo dieting. If you're tired of food controlling your life or simply feel confused about what, when, or how you're supposed to eat, I can help you restore peace, joy, and confidence to your eating. While I'm based in Washington, telehealth technology allows me to work with clients through many areas of the United States. And if you do live in Washington, I accept most insurance plans. Visit Adina Pearson Nutrition online to learn more at adinapearson.com. Don't spend another day fighting with food and your body. Reach out today to start your journey toward a healthy life that's free of food worries. You go to great lengths to take care of your doodle's health. Don't forget to invest in your health and happiness too. Now, I wanted to address that statement, adopt, don't shop, because mm-hmm. it it bothers me as someone who I love rescue and I've done very short volunteering with fostering a little bit last mm-hmm. year. Um, it was my first time and I support rescue and I have friends in rescue and I'm a big proponent of looking at a rescue, going to your shelter and, and seeing if there's a dog there, you know, look at checking out Pet Finder. But I also think that it's 100% fair and ethical to want a specific kind of dog. Like if Mm -hmm. I go to my shelter now, it's probably 80% pit bull terriers or mixes, maybe a cattle dog, maybe like a senior Great Pyrenees or something. Like there's not, and some chihuahuas, there's not necessarily the kind of breeds that I would want in my house that Mm -hmm. makes sense for me. So I I think it's 100% fair to think, hey, I want a dog that does this, or I want an agility dog, I'm going to go get a miniature poodle, or I'm going to get, there's things that maybe people want to do with the dog. Or again, like you said, maybe they have allergies and a lower shedding dog makes sense for them. The part of that adopt don't shop statement that makes the most sense to me is the shop part. When you shop for anything else, like if there's a sale on cute shoes at Nordstrom, (laughs) you're going to go with the eye toward getting the best bargain, the cutest shoes, and you're not thinking about the product or where it's made or any of those things. And that's fine because they're shoes. Or maybe there's Walmart sale and your kids need some new shoes for school and you want to get a bunch of cheap ones because they're going to outgrow them next year. It makes sense to shop for products that way, to go for cheap, to go for impulse. Um, And it's Oh, it's not great to shop on impulse for anything, but you know, it's life and a pair of cheap shoes isn't going to hurt anybody necessarily. So to take that same philosophy of shopping and put it on buying an animal that's a companion makes no sense. So I think you shouldn't be shopping for a dog with that kind of impulse attitude, whether you're going to the shelter down the street or you're looking at a rescue, like Mm. just don't buy, don't look at dog ownership as this impulse thing of a product that like Mm -hmm. you saw a shiny dog over there and you want a shiny dog too. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. I often make the comparison when I'm talking to people. Similarly, I, I often compare it to cars. Mm. And shoes are sort of similar in this way. Um, but it's it's a major purchase that lasts years, theoretically. And it's not just what we think we want from the car. It's what we want other people to see in us. Right. So, you know, I know a lot of people that want certain fancy breeds because what it says about them to the world. Or, you know, but it also works for the other way because I know people that will adopt, you know, the the most difficult breed that they can find from a rescue <laughs> to make a point that I'm a good person. I, you know, I adopt whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it can work positively, it can work negatively, but there is this aspect of conspicuous consumption of the kind of dog I have speaks something about me um, for, for good or bad. You know, there should be this, unfortunately, the system is set up to tap into our consumer behavior. And that includes impulse bias. That's why I say don't even go in the pet shop because once right. you set foot in there, you're already, you're already done in a lot of cases. And, and same with a rescue, although obviously it can work out well for a dog that needs a home. But you also, you know, you also see people dumping dogs at rescue too, who are, have <laughs> served a 15 year term with them and now they're older and maybe incontinent and the family doesn't want to deal. So they dump them in a rescue. Um, and, and that's also horrible. I think we just need to change how we look at dogs. This is an animal that probably co-evolved with us for millennia. This is an animal that we changed. The wolf and the dog are not the same anymore. And that's because of us. There's a meme that I, I really like that floats around online of it's a wolf approaching like a campfire and it says, what could go wrong? I'll just take some food. And then the next picture is a puppy in like a, like a goofy hat and a little sweater. It's like, you know, you take food from humans 10,000 years ago. And the next thing you know, you're in a handbag somewhere um, <laughs> being carried around. And there's truth to that. There's um, a woman who, won, who writes beautifully about dogs, um, Alexandra Horowitz um, at Barnard, and she, she's written beautiful books. Um, and my favorite line of hers is that dogs are animals with an asterisk. You know, and I think that's so true. They're not fully animal anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, when I took Izzy to that researcher at Penn and she did her, <laughs> I think it was like a three-hour test on her, she performed very, I've never trained Izzy to do anything except, I don't know, exist and <laughs> be loving and she's wonderful, but she's not the brightest bulb in the fixture. She's fine. She's a wonderful pet, but she's not any, she's no show dog and she's no genius. And these tests that this researcher was doing showed that she responds to cues that even chimpanzees can't, mm. which is incredible. And by the way, wolves can't either. Um, so human clues. So for example, she would hide something behind a box, take me and Izzy out of the room, hide something behind a box and then bring us in and point to the box. The, a woman who this dog doesn't know, mm-hmm. giving a social referent, the dog has not been trained to anticipate and she immediately would go to the right box. You know, that's not a trick I've taught her. I haven't taught her <laughs> anything yeah. like that. Chimpanzees can't do that. They can't read human head nods and pointing. They haven't been, unless they've been taught to, same with wolves. Dogs can innately. They have been bred to read us. There, you know, there are studies that show that dogs prefer human praise over treats. You know, dogs in an fMRI machine, so not just wagging their tails, but actual brain activity. Mm-hmm. 
this is an animal that is bonded to us in a very, very unique way beyond even cats or any other animal that we see in a domestic context. Not that any animal should be abused. So when you're thinking about buying or adopting or whatever you're going to do to get a dog, just remember, this is a very kind of sacred bond that's taken yes. 10,000 years to create. And by the way, is older than your language, your laws, or your currency. So take it seriously. Wherever you're getting your dog from, take it really seriously and respect that bond. It predates you and it's going to outlive you. Absolutely. And I'm going to start a topic that might be controversial. I posted something like this on our Facebook page. Um, and I mostly asked questions. I didn't state a conclusion. But thinking about dogs in this way as these amazing living creatures that love us so much and are capable of bonding and interacting and communicating with us. And then the term puppy mill. Mm. So there's the aspect of puppy mills. That's the obvious thing, right? Like filthy conditions, negligence, possibly abuse, like mistreatment of the animals that the puppy mill owns, right? There's that part that I think regardless of whether it's a puppy mill or it's someone's backyard dog, most of us would recoil and say that's horrible, right? That's not how sure. a dog should be treated. But then there is the aspect of puppy mill that connotes factory, that connotes, you know, a mill <laughs> that connotes large volume production yes. of a product. And I'm wondering, aside from the yuck factor, where is that line? You know, I, I want people to think about what is, where is that line between this is a factory that makes puppies to supply demand of humans. And this is someone breeding for some kind of purpose that is that we might think is good and proper and I don't think that's talked about enough because is it a puppy mill if there's 600 dogs yes what about 100 what about 25 <laughs> you know what if the only thing these dogs do is exist in order to create puppies to fill a list because there's a lot of people demanding puppies from this breeder versus a breeder who loves the breed and does things that make sense for that breed, you know, they participate in competition or they participate in somehow keeping that breed alive for the sake of history and love of the breed. And breeding is just one aspect of that so that they can continue to have this breed. There's a big gap, right, between the scary puppy mill that's gross and dirty and has 600 dogs and the breeder that breeds maybe once a year for the sake of the breed. And there's all sorts of middle ground, <laughs> Any thoughts on that? Like, where, where do you fall and how, would, how do you look at that? So while there is no accepted legal definition of the term puppy mill, there is precedent in one case where the court gave some kind of definition, um, which I think is pretty good as a watermark for what is a puppy mill. And it's any facility that puts profits over the health of the animals, the health and welfare of the animals. So you can have one dog and maybe be a puppy mill. <laughs> um, you know, any facility that puts profits over welfare for that animal can be considered a puppy mill. Now, obviously the term mill does connote volume, mm -hmm. um, but again, it doesn't matter to the dog what's being harmed. Um, anytime you're putting profit over welfare, I think it's important to recognize that you're you know, you're making a, a very serious value judgment that is going to harm potentially that animal. So I, I, that's how I look at it. Mm -hmm. Having said that, um, I've been particularly disheartened 
um, that when states have tried to make breeding caps, um, number caps on uh -huh. um, facilities, um, such as Missouri did with Proposition B in 2010, big ag came in and shut it down. Um, they tried to put a 50 dog cap on breeding facilities. Hmm. And it was actually voted in by a voter ballot initiative. And then big ag came in and saw that somehow taken, taken away, um, which was very upsetting to anybody involved in animal welfare. Why? Because the fear was if you put a 50 dog cap on a breeding facility, you'll do it at a cattle facility or a chicken facility or, oh. you know, and we all know there are more than 50 chickens at any Tyson or Purdue hen house, whether you sure. eat eggs or not, or eat chicken or not. So they were afraid. And again, that underscores the link between livestock, agriculture, and dogs in this context, which is just baffling to me. Mm -hmm. Again, not that any, any animal, livestock or otherwise, should be harmed. But they, for whatever reason, came up with the number 50. Mm -hmm. I don't think that means that you have 49 dogs, you're not a puppy mill. Right. I've seen smaller facilities that treat the dogs like garbage. And I've seen very large facilities that treat the dog. You know, it's... It, it, it's, it's all, anytime I think that you're using an animal to make money, you should really stop and think, like really stop and think. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the crux of the thing, because it's something I struggle with. I believe in business. I believe in entrepreneurship. I believe in like, you know, if there's a demand for a product and you could fill that need, what a great business opportunity. Like I'm all for that. And I guess what I've been thinking about is more the philosophical aspect, like is that okay with a companion animal? Is that okay with that, like the way you describe like the sacredness of the dog? Is that an okay thing? And not so much from a legal perspective or anything to do with the laws, but more just as a personal philosophical issue. And I've been kind of just pondering that in my head and, and asking our listeners, you know, to think about that. Like how, how is it different to meet the supply demand for a pair of shoes that Nike suddenly discovers is popular and people want to buy it versus somebody discovering, wow, everybody wants this, these puppies from me. I make the best golden doodles, let's say. So I'm going to, I'm going to start to increase my supply because there's a huge demand. Like, is there a difference in that? You know, should we, how should we think about that? So more just a rhetorical question for listeners. <laughs> sure. And, and look, you know, again, cause I'm not, I don't just focus on animal issues. I should say people, people use kids to make money people make some of those Nike shoes with children <laughs> making yeah. those Nike shoes. Anything you buy has a supply chain that could be or could not be ethical. Mm -hmm. um, anytime you're making money off of the back of um, someone or something that can't, defend itself or have a say in it, I think it's really important to think about and just consider, you know, and, and with dogs, you know, it's, it's important to just consider these are animals that somebody's profiting off of. If somebody's making money, how do you feel about that? Yeah, exactly. And what if, what if the dogs are treated royally? <laughs> Does that make it different, better? Okay, I don't know. Just some things to think about. So, what are some of the signs of a puppy mill that you would want listeners to to know about? Like, for example, would you say if there's a breeder in Missouri, you should have higher red flags? Oh, certainly statistically speaking, yes. Mm -hmm. Does that mean every breeder in Missouri is a bad breed? No. Of course not. Yeah. Um, I'm just speaking on statistics because mm -hmm. it is the highest concentration puppy puppy mill state in the country. I think it's God, I would have to look at the numbers again. 
but I think it, in some, it might be even like double the closest, the closest runner up. So first of all, I would say do your research. I'm a big proponent of research, obviously, because that's my livelihood. Um, so, and I, you know, you don't need this, the skills of a journalist or a reporter or a detective to figure out things. A lot of the information I found that was most damning was available with a Google search. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, when I went to the USDA and said, hey, why haven't you shut down this breeder? Oh, we didn't have that information. I said, I Googled <laughs> their name. Like, yeah. You know, it wasn't even like, you know, a shocking expose. I mean, I did have that kind of information as well. But in some cases, I said, my God, did you not Google this person? Here, here's a press release from the state attorney general in New Jersey where the supply chain is ending at a pet shop and these dogs are dying. <laughs> did you not Google this person? You know, you don't have to be a genius. Um, right. Google the breeder, look at them, talk to them ask to go, whether it's in Missouri or Timbuktu, if you want a dog from them, you should go and see it for yourself. If they won't let you on the property, big red flags start over. What about obvious things that, you know, don't necessarily require research or going, but like you, you Google, you know, Labradoodle breeder, Kentucky or whatever, and you get some websites. What are some really obvious clues that mm. this website is the, the store of a puppy mill? <laughs> Anyone who has online dated, I'm sure, can tell you that pictures online are not always what you're actually talking to or looking at. Mm -hmm. So if you Google Doodle Breeder Kentucky, you may see rolling hills and beautiful children snuggling with puppies and, you know, butterflies and rainbows. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you're looking at that breeder. Again, the only way you will know is if you physically go there. So that's why I say, you know, you've got to do some legwork. So, you know, I, I would recommend physically going because the internet lies. Yeah. Um, it just does. Like, again, ask anybody who's tried to online date if everybody who showed up for coffee was the same as the picture that they got um, on Tinder. Well, you mentioned next day pets, you know, and I'm thinking that, you know, would be obvious. You go to a website and they have 50 different breeds mm -hmm. of puppies. We're all ready to go. And that is likely not coming from a breeder. But there's also websites that really can be tricky for someone who's not used to what it is like to buy from a, a quality breeder. So I'm not going to name names, but we'll say Rolling Hills Puppies, right? The name of the website is Puppies. It's not like Rolling Hills Standard Poodles or whatever. And again, they, and they might say on there, we have lots of wonderful families throughout this region who raise puppies for us and, you know, love them and care for them. And you can see, you can look up a breed and you'll get a list of available puppies and you'll get a list of like the name of the breeder and their phone number. <laughs> and that can look like, oh, wait, my puppy isn't bred at a big facility. It's with this family. <laughs> and yet here are, you know, hundreds of puppies that this website can link you to. Um, and you can just buy it without necessarily meeting the family or you probably can't meet the family. Well, that's a big red flag. I mean, any breeder that's going to fly a dog to you is generally a big red flag right off the bat. If you're seeing a website for a breeder, no matter how beautiful the website is and the pictures are, if they're willing to ship a dog to you sight unseen in a cargo hold of an airplane without meeting you, walk, <laughs> run. <laughs> that's, you know, they, nobody should be shipping a dog to you sight unseen um, without a lot of questions. Um, yeah. I did talk to one breeder who was willing to personally fly with the dog 
mm-hmm. to people to get the dog there or drive extensively for an, obviously an added fee. But if somebody's just, if you're picking up a dog in a cargo hold from a cargo hold at an airport, and I know a lot of people who've done it and they have happy dogs and they have, they're very yep. happy and they're nice people. And I, you know, some of them are family, but you know, that's <laughs> probably not a very humanely bred dog. And that's the thing is that you can have a puppy mill produce some puppies that are just fine, right? That not every dog from a puppy mill comes out misshapen and like grovelly and sick and, you know, full of diarrhea. Like they don't all come out horrible, but lots do. And so I've seen this in different forums where someone will ask, um, have you ever gotten a dog from Rolling Hills Puppies? And, and lots of people, oh yeah, I had a dog from there. It was fine. <laughs> And you know, you know what's behind that. I call it kind of the Oprah principle, um, which is that if you, let's say you're having a child and you want that child to, I don't know, whatever your marker of success is, go to Harvard, be a millionaire, whatever. You want to give that kid the best education, the most kind, gentle, loving, structured upbringing. You want to give them all of the things that brings about a successful adulthood. Um, but then you get outliers like Oprah who had a really difficult childhood, um, with abuse and neglect and just horrible, horrible things and went on to become the most successful woman in entertainment. There's only one Oprah though. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you can, you can gamble and put, put your kid through hell and hope that you end up (laughs) with an Oprah. I don't think you will. Um, and, and you know, just criminal, horrible things, but you know, I think it's important to recognize that do you want to gamble that you have your puppy is the next Oprah of dogs that you mm-hmm. can get it from a horrible, horrible start and yeah. end up with a wonderful dog? And I, you know, I'm very open about the fact that I have a healthy, long-lived, so far, Knockwood dog. Now, she, does she look sick? Are there any outward indications that this is a puppy mill dog? No. People that need her love her. But she has mental issues that are significant. And some I didn't even know about until I took her for that test with the neurobehavioralist who looked at her and said, oh, that's interesting. So what? You know, and she could pick up on things that immediately indicated this was a puppy mill dog. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never even noticed um, because it, it, I'm not a veterinarian. I'm not an animal expert. They weren't things that rang a red flag with me. Now, the fact that she barks at everything and has horrible anxiety and things like that, I do notice. Mm-hmm. But the fact that she doesn't use her paws to explore didn't occur to me. The fact she doesn't like her paws touched, I thought, well, she just doesn't like her paws touched. Mm-hmm. I don't like my feet touched. <laughs> well, that's a sign she was probably bred on a wire mesh cage mm. and spent the first several weeks of her life in that kind of, you know, and that's imprinted on her for life. 10 years later, she still does not like her paws touched you know, and things like that. Um, the fact that she doesn't want to explore new situations, the fact that she doesn't have curiosity is yet an, another mental health sign. Something I didn't notice because I love her and I don't notice these things, you know? Yeah. Um, she was your first dog and this was just, this is what dogs are like. Yeah. What, what do I know? I mean, she doesn't bite. She's loving. She's an amazing animal. So yeah. why would I notice that? Um, so sometimes our love can be blinding and I think mm-hmm. that's important to note. Um, so just because the dog doesn't come looking sick doesn't mean it doesn't have problems that you won't have to address over its life. Yeah. 
I did want to address one thing. The tricky part with doodle breeders, and I'm quite confident there's a lot that are not mills in the way we think of mills. They're not mistreating dogs. They're doing their best to take care of puppies and raise them well. Okay, so we'll set that aside. But the majority of doodle breeders do not allow visits before you've already put a deposit down. Mm. And the reasons for this, and this is where like they don't fit the normal thing that you would use with breeders. And it's frustrating for me as a buyer. But the reason for this is they often have multiple litters at a time. And they tend to have litters through the year. And their reason is that, you know, because their dogs are popular, people are calling them all the time, you know, Mm -hmm. hey, I'm interested in your dogs. And so for them, it would be having a constant foot traffic and bringing in potential parvo or whatever diseases, you know, from people constantly coming by and meeting their dogs and causing stress or whatever. And so I get that. At the same time, it really, it hinders people from being able to follow that general guideline that you would use with any other breed is to go visit the facility. Oftentimes you can visit the puppies like at six weeks if you have a deposit and you're going to be one of the adoptive families. So that's nice. But sometimes it takes a little more sleuthing and following them on Facebook to see kind of those regular videos that they post with the mama dogs and the things they do with the puppies and et cetera. Or you have to know someone who has been there in person and can vouch. And that, that makes that a little bit tricky. Anyway, I guess that wasn't really a question for you. (laughs) It was just (laughs) something I wanted to put out there. It's a, like a snag in the system that makes it harder for the person interested in a doodle, but I would still at least ask, ask and then hopefully go over there when those puppies are six weeks and you can meet them fly over there don't just have the dog flown to you or transported with a puppy nanny so that you can say hey I've been there I've seen the facility I can vouch for them yeah I mean and honestly even again if a breeder only wants your deposit before they even let you know a breeder should welcome your due diligence Mm -hmm. if they have nothing to hide so the fact that you should pay, I don't know what a deposit is, a thousand bucks, 500 bucks, whatever for mm-hmm. a purebred, I don't know. Again, that, that signals to me a little bit of a red flag, perhaps, that they're putting profitability over a consumer who wants to do their due diligence. They should want to meet you. Um, I met one exceptional breeder who they meet everyone and they, they're very harsh. They reject people. They didn't <laughs> like, if you have a kid, you have to bring the kid. First of all, uh-huh. if the kid is under seven, you're out anyway. Uh-huh. And they've rejected people because they they had a 10-year-old who was like sitting on their dining room table and this kid doesn't respect yes. our home. How's he going to respect a dog? Right. You know, family was out. You know, yeah. so you're putting a deposit down. Seems a bit of a red flag if they haven't met you and asked and done their due diligence on you. Yeah. So, you know, I again, you. I can't speak for all breeders. I'm not going to say that they're all bad, all good. And if they take a deposit before they meet you, you know, whatever. People conduct their business different ways. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just the difference is when you have more than one litter at a time, there is that potential for, I guess, a bunch of people visiting all the time and bringing in parvo or some other condition for the dogs to catch. And I've also seen that often used as an excuse by bad readers. So just it's so tricky. Yeah, definitely. Um, That's why I say if you can, if there's a doodle breeder you're interested in, if you can find someone, you know, not just a random email from someone that has been there and can vouch for the fact that it's, everything's nice and clean, then that's, I would, I would be comfortable with that. Anyway, thank you, Rory, so much for being here. I'm going to link to your book and yeah. anything else that you said, Bealing Out Benji, etc. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. Have a thank wonderful you. day. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. 
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast. If you have any ideas or recommendations for future topics or guests, send me an email at admin at doodlekisses.com. That's A-D-M-I-N at doodlekisses.com. Also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or however you get your podcasts so you can have every episode ready to listen to as soon as it comes out. The show notes will link you to our GoFundMe page as well as links to some of the things we discussed in today's episode. Talk to you next time on the next episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast.